0: Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. We are talking about the Dutch Revolt, the Eighty Years' War, and if you haven't listened to the previous episodes on it, you might want to go do that now. If you have, William the Silent was just assassinated, and the provinces needed a new leader who could keep Spain from swallowing them up whole once again. They'll eventually find one in William's son, 17-year-old Maurice of Nassau. But before they do, they'll try and fail with yet another foreign regent. If you're enjoying the series, please go rate the podcast on iTunes. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. And you can always email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is The Dutch Revolt, Part 6. Alexander Farnese and the Earl of Leicester. And this is The Almost Forgotten. By the end of fifteen eighty four, William was dead, and the United Provinces of the Netherlands weren't fully united or free. Other than Holland, Zeeland, and Tiny Utrecht, every province had at least some towns or cities occupied by Alexander Farnese and the Spanish and Italian soldiers, or the local Royalist Catholic allies of King Philip of Spain. To the south, those Walloon provinces close to the French border had made their peace with, and been welcomed back, by Spain. With a few united provinces, and a dozen or so partially united provinces, their leader dead, and a locally resurgent Spain, the revolution was not in great shape. According to John Lothrop Motley, in his History of the United Netherlands, quote, On the one side, one of the most powerful and populous world empires of history, then, in the zenith of its prosperity, on the other hand, a slender group of cities, governed by merchants and artisans, and planted precariously upon a meager, unstable soil, a million and a half souls against the autocrat of a third of the known world, unquote. Despite these odds, the state's general was unwavering, and immediately after the death of William, they passed a resolution to continue the good cause. A state council, which had been an advisory board to the Duke of Anjou, was given executive authority, as there was no other in the provinces. They appointed William's son Maurice to lead it, although he was only seventeen at the time. Maurice was not, however, the new Prince of Orange. That title was passed to William's eldest son, Philip William, who still resided in Madrid as a captive of King Philip. William the Silent had more children including a son, Justinus Van Nassau, who was born out of wedlock after William's first wife died, before he remarried. He also had a son, Frederick Henry, who was barely a year old at the time of the assassination. He had about nine daughters who survived infancy, including one who was the great-grandmother of the eventual George I, King of England. Now, this new executive-powered state council had 18 members, a few from each of the provinces that remained. Maurice was not, as of yet, expected to take full command. The states' general were instead really led by Johann van Oldenbarnevelt, a revolutionary leader who had volunteered for the relief of Leiden and became a leading politician. He helped promote and convince many to join the Union of Utrecht. And the war was not over. Although Alexander didn't have a significant number of forces, He had enough to top the United Provinces. He concentrated on three cities near the Scheldt in Flanders and Brabant, Ghent, Antwerp, and Brussels. Ghent, a city as large as Paris at the time, surrendered in late 1584 after negotiations. A Spanish garrison was placed in the city, and people were given two years to leave if they decided not to re-embrace Catholicism. It was a liberal peace deal for the people there, if you didn't care about anything more than lip service to the ancient rights and privileges. And after a decade and a half of war, many people didn't. Antwerp, though, was not willing to give up. It was truly the commercial capital of the whole of the Low Countries and perhaps all of Northern Europe. It was filled with Protestants and was seen as the key to the whole country. In central Brabant, on the west side of the province. Antwerp sits near the mouth of the Scheldt before that important trade highway spills out to make a massive watery delta in Zeeland. Alexander set out to take it. The people knew this was coming before it started. William, before his death, implored the people to destroy the dikes on the east bank of the Scheldt where Antwerp sat. It would destroy farmland, but it would essentially make Antwerp an island, sitting on the ocean, rather than on the east side of a river. When asked about the other side of the river to the west, where there was less farmland to be destroyed, William advised against it. He said it wouldn't help much, and could make things more difficult. Antwerp was a powerful city with a strong merchant class, but it had no real leadership after William was dead. Once real danger came, it was more anarchy than democracy, because the city leader, the burgermeister didn't really have any executive authority over the legislators. And without a professional army, the military command wasn't entirely clear. The chaos, as described by Mali. Quote, once a week there was a session of the board or general council, heads of colleges, presidents of chambers, militia chieftains, magistrates, ward masters, deans of fishmongers, of tailors, gardeners, butchers, all met together pell-mell, and there was no predominant authority. The burgher militia were well-trained and courageous, but not distinguished for their docility. There was also a regiment of English under Colonel Morgan, a soldier of great experience and much respected, unquote. The English garrison had problems of its own, and there were desertions and a mutiny that was suppressed when Morgan beheaded two of his captains. Alongside the English garrison, Phillips de Marnix, Lord of St. Aldegon, and a longtime ally of William, was the man tasked with leading the group. He was a polymath and a well-regarded man in his time. He had probably penned some or most of the declarations of union and independence over the last few years. But he was not William, and he could not expect the same level of obedience. Trouble began immediately. Money was dedicated to arming and to stocking food, but the admiral who was to deliver it was one of the old sea beggars, who was maybe a little more pirate than patriot. He spent weeks without delivering the needed supplies. He was eventually replaced by 25-year-old Justinus Van Nassau, William's illegitimate son. Downriver from Antwerp, the Spanish fought for and took control of two forts, one on each side of the Scheldt. It was not an easy task, but it was accomplished with significant effort. At this point, deliveries of grain were still coming through, although the passage in between the two forts to get to Antwerp was dangerous. But, in an effort to try to keep the merchants from gouging the citizens, city leaders put a cap on grain prices, demonstrating a complete lack of understanding of economics. Helping the citizens of their city afford food was the intent, and a noble one at that, from the rich merchants. The result, however, was a significant reduction in merchant traffic. No private merchants were going to risk their lives to relieve the city without being paid well. And the more treacherous the delivery became, the more merchants decided it just wasn't worth it. It was a partial blockade and it was exacerbated by the leaders of Antwerp. To compound this mistake, the dikes and the sluices were opened, but on the west side of the river, opposite the city rather than the east where Antwerp sat. So, while there was damage to the area, and the Spanish were inconvenienced, it didn't end the siege. If they had opened the dikes on the side where Antwerp sat, like William had suggested, quote, the ocean would have rolled quite to the gates of Antwerp, unquote, according to Motley, and they would have been able to sail freely to and from Zealand. By the time they decided to do it, The Spanish had taken the dike that needed to be destroyed, and the Dutch were unable to take it back. Moreover, Alexander soon found that as the waters rose across the river from Antwerp, he could use ships to bring supplies and heavy cannon right up to Antwerp from the west. It was a series of mistakes and disasters that William would have been able to prevent, knew he had to prevent, because he saw all of these issues already. He wasn't the only one, for sure. He was just the only one who could have gotten the various parties to listen. Late in 1584, the states were in negotiations with Paris to try to get a deal where they would be protected by France. France as their sovereign was a troubling concept to Holland and Zealand, who preferred England. But times were desperate, and negotiations continued. England wasn't the power France was, but Elizabeth wasn't quite yet ready to throw her full weight in the effort anyway. Regardless, in the end, the negotiations with France fell through. The civil war had again flared up there, and no help was there to be given at the time. That winter, Alexander set about bridging the Scheldt, which was thought impossible due to ice blocks that would start coming down the river. Little ice age, remember. It was by no means an easy engineering task but Alexander proved it was indeed possible, and by the end of February, after several months, the Scheldt was straddled just downstream from Antwerp with a heavily fortified bridge. No goods could get into the city anymore. When the promise of French assistance finally disappeared and the Scheldt was bridged, the people of Brussels, which was also under siege, saw clearly what was in store. Brussels is located on a smaller, indirect tributary of the Scheldt, and the city quickly capitulated to Alexander. This was the seat of power in the Low Countries for many years, and it was a big loss to the revolution. Antwerp, though, so close to Zealand, and nearer to the possibility of relief, held out. An Italian engineer in Antwerp devised a plan to destroy the blockading bridge. He filled two ships with gunpowder. He had asked for three, and bigger ones, but two ships was what he got, and he had a clockmaker install a timing mechanism. Along with so-called hellburner ships, which were filled with combustible material and lit on fire as they were sent down the river, the fleet was sent out in the middle of the night in early April. One of the bombships made it to its destination and exploded. A thousand Spanish soldiers, including some leading officers, were killed. Alexander of Parma was knocked down by the concussive force, and a man next to him died from it, but he survived, having moved out of the way just in time. There was a plan here besides just blowing up the bridge. There was a Dutch fleet very close, ready to relieve Antwerp with supplies at that very moment. The Spanish were in a panic. Alexander ran out to survey the bridge and await the Dutch fleet that would surely try to destroy more of it and bring supplies to the city. It never came. The Dutch admiral who had sent the bomb ships and was supposed to signal to this waiting fleet seems to have frozen from fear after the massive explosion. He didn't send someone to investigate the breach. Too far away to know the extent of the damage, the fleet waited for word that never came. Alexander moved quickly and worked to clog up the waterway with debris and prevent anyone from entering. The initial attack worked, but it wasn't big enough and the gambit was ultimately unsuccessful. There were subsequent attacks on the bridge, more fireboats, and even a massive vessel called the Fendager, end of the war, that tried to bail out the city, but nothing again came close to taking out the bridge. They tried to attack the well-defended dike on the east side of the Scheldt, hoping to destroy it and bring the sea to Antwerp. Alexander Farnese knew too well its importance, and kept it stoutly defended. They could never take it. In the end, it was a masterful siege by a brilliant commander who all the while constantly had to beg Spain for troops and money. Philip of Spain was too busy funding civil wars in France and dreaming of a united Franco-Spanish Catholic conquest of England to give Alexander more than the bare minimum. In early summer, a fleet from Zealand, which included Maurice of Nassau, assaulted some forts around the crucial seawall that they had wanted to destroy. Things looked bad for the fleet, but then Marnix led a group of Dutch and English soldiers out from Antwerp and helped rout the Spanish. They entrenched themselves and began to destroy the dike. After holding it for a few hours, a ship was able to get through on the sea passageway which had opened up, and Marnix sailed in with it to bring the tidings of the relief to the city. But the Spanish were not done, and Alexander was able to rally his forces. He sent thousands of men up at the soldiers mining out the seawall. Over and over, the Spanish assaulted the entrenchments and were beaten back. But after five attacks, they finally took it, thanks in part to the ebbing of the tide. The Dutch commanders on ships had to fall back, and eventually the dike was retaken by the Spanish. Queen Elizabeth now sent dispatches urging the city to hold on she was fearful of the consequences of going in fully with the dutch revolt she was worried that the spanish might i don't know send a massive fleet of ships to attack england she also knew if the spanish regained full control of the netherlands and all of their maritime assets it could be just as detrimental to england over the course of 1585 she finally started leaning in and publicly assisting the Dutch Rebellion. But it was too late for Antwerp. The attempts on the bridge and the dike were remarkable, and both had almost worked, but neither relieved the city in full. By June, it was clear that the city wasn't going to make it out. In early July, under an agreement of truce, Marnix traveled to Alexander's camp to negotiate a capitulation. He begged for religious toleration in the city, but King Philip would still not agree to that. In the end, though, it was relatively peaceful for the citizens of Antwerp, nothing like the Spanish fury from the mutinous soldiers a decade earlier. This was in part because the Dutch and English were gathering more fleets, and the end of the summer would bring a more swollen waterway and the opportunity to attack the East Dyke again. Could Antwerp have held out longer? Certainly. And a city further north, with fewer Catholics and less sympathy, or at least antipathy towards the Spanish, might have. But there was enough opposition to death and starvation in the name of Dutch liberty, that they surrendered. There was no sacking of the city, Alexander made sure of that. He entered the city in triumph on August 17, 1585. Protestants were given four years to leave the city, and leave they did. Antwerp the commercial center of the biggest revenue-producing region of the Spanish Empire in Europe was quickly abandoned by the reformist merchants, traders, and businessmen who made their way to Zealand and Holland, in part because the Calvinist merchants could go to Holland and feel safe. But remember, there was still a war going on. Catholic merchants went to Holland as well, because any shipping to Antwerp would have to pass through Zealand and a Dutch blockade. The city quickly lost its status as the major commercial hub in the region. The loss was Zeeland and Holland's gain. This was a major change in the economic environment of the provinces. Holland and Amsterdam were the beneficiaries over the next few decades. According to Oscar Gelderblom, in his article conveniently titled From Antwerp to Amsterdam, By 1609, the face of Amsterdam's merchant community had changed dramatically. Massive immigration reduced the share of local merchants to about 40 percent. Merchants from the southern Netherlands now made up one-third of all merchants active in the Amsterdam market. The share of merchants from other towns in the Dutch Republic had doubled between 1585 and 1609, Antwerp, the most important port in certainly all of northern Europe for the previous century plus, considered by many to be the richest city in all of Europe, declined significantly in importance, and much of its wealth was transferred north, not that it felt so good for the Dutch at the moment. The one bit of good news in this whole event for the Dutch was that Elizabeth signed a treaty in August 1585 with the government of the Netherlands. She pledged money and troops, and the important cities of Flushing and Brilla, as well as two seats on the state council, were given over to the English in return. To help with the fight, Elizabeth sent Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, over to lead English forces as her supreme commander in the Netherlands. He landed in December 1585, and with these acts, Elizabeth knew she was essentially declaring war on Spain. Geoffrey Parker writes the treaty signed at Nonsuch Palace in Surrey would indeed turn Spanish ire towards Elizabeth, as she feared. Quote, Treaty of Nonsuch, signed by Queen Elizabeth of England in August 1585, did provoke Philip II to transfer his resources from the reconquest of the Netherlands to the invasion of England. The decision to send the invincible armada against England in 1588, followed by the resolution to intervene on the Catholic side in the French religious wars after 1589, proved a godsend to the Dutch, unquote. Maurice of Nassau was named Stadtholder of Holland and Zeeland right after the treaty was signed, in a somewhat sly move that got him in before Elizabeth's men had a say in the state council. Maurice's first cousin, William Lewis, the son of William of Orange's brother Count John, had been named Stadtholder in Friesland the previous year. The English were received by the people of the Netherlands with the exuberance that would befit those viewed as the saviors of their liberty, at least initially. They certainly helped secure Holland and Zealand and took back some lost towns there. The English, for their part, were impressed with the opulence of the Netherlands, an effect of both the thriving commerce in the country and the fact that England was not yet a leading economy of Western Europe. In early 1586 in The Hague, The Earl of Leicester was named Governor General to the great excitement of everyone, except for Elizabeth, who had refused sovereignty over the Low Countries and told Leicester not to take the title. But he was a charmer and eventually convinced her to just go with the flow. The title gave him supreme authority over the Netherlands for the time being. The Earl of Leicester wasn't the only English nobleman of high rank fighting for the Dutch, and the Low Countries wasn't the only battlefield. In what the English called the Great Expedition, Sir Francis Drake, after the Treaty of Nonsuch, went to the Americas and raided Spanish territory in 1585 and 1586. He was incredibly successful in his voyage, and he attacked and plundered cities including Santo Domingo and Cartagena. The Dutch, too, sent ships to the west to prevent gold and silver from reaching Spain, and to try to put more financial pressure on Philip, who was still not giving Alexander enough money to properly equip the troops he had, let alone raise enough forces to really recapture the rest of the territory. All of this did have an effect on the Spanish. Alexander wrote to Philip that the bankers in Antwerp, despite now being Spanish territory, were very reluctant to lend money. Farnese wrote, quote, They are drawing their purse strings very tight and will make no accommodation. The most contemplative of them ponder much over the success of Drake, and think your majesty will forget our matters here altogether, In other words, lending to the Spanish here was seen as quite risky. They might withdraw from the region and never pay back what they owed. The Spanish, though, had made major encroachments over the previous year into the heart of Brabant with the capture of Antwerp and Brussels. Alexander's next target was to take the towns along the Meuse River, further to the east, which runs north-south from France, before turning east at the city of Namur, then goes north again, before turning west, and joining the rhine meuse scheldt delta In the spring of 1586, he set out to take the well-defended city of Grave, which sits on the Brabant side of the river. A few thousand English forces marched out and fortified the area, and in April they defeated an attacking Spanish army in the rain on the banks of the Meuse. When the English and the Dutch had driven the Spanish from the field, the Earl of Leicester threw a wild party to celebrate the horrible condition Alexander and his forces were now in. Alexander, on the other hand, went to join his veteran troops and quickly reset the siege. By late May he had thrown up the necessary entrenchments, In early June, a cannonball shot out his horse from under him. But, as with the explosion on the bridge outside of Antwerp, he escaped a bit dazed, but otherwise no worse for the wear. Attacks commenced that night, and the next day the city surrendered with terms. Alexander was more than happy to let the garrison leave in exchange for the town, with its great strategic location. The Spanish found enough supplies to sustain 6,000 troops for a year, and the walls in sufficient shape to withstand months of attack. Lester was apoplectic when he learned of the surrender. The officers who had left were, almost to a man, pretty upset themselves. They wanted to stay and fight, but it was the governor of the city who had given it up. Alexander then marched further away from the shore and began taking other important towns along the Meuse. From Motley, quote, Thus, within a few weeks after taking the field, the dejected, melancholy man who was so out of courage, and the soldiers who were so marvelously beginning to run away, according to the Earl of Leicester, had swept their enemy from every town on the Meuse. That river was now, throughout its whole course, in the power of the Spaniards. The province of Brabant became thoroughly guarded again by its foes, and the enemy's road was open into the northern provinces, unquote. Lester had planned to wheel around and attack Alexander from the east while the Duke of Parma was licking his wounds. Instead, they marched up the Meuse away from him, and it seems he became frozen with inaction. As was often the story here, a lack of funds kept him from being able to march what was now so far east to catch up with the Spanish. Alexander, meanwhile, turned his attention to the Upper Rhine and the city of Nois, twenty miles south of Cologne. It was actually part of the Holy Roman Empire, and was in the midst of its own small war. Farnese had picked a side, and he reduced the town to rubble before taking it. The Spanish sacked the town, and Farnese gave no quarter. Thousands died. While that siege was going on, though, Maurice of Nassau had his first military success. He had meticulously planned, and then, along with the English allies, completed an attack on the town of axel in zealand it was fortified and held a commanding position over the scheldt river with nearly 600 spanish soldiers guarding it they were almost all killed and not a single dutch or english soldier was killed thanks to the surprise attack they swam the moat holding ladders and climbed up the walls at night catching the spanish completely off guard The Earl of Leicester, meanwhile, decided he wasn't strong enough to directly engage with Alexander. Instead, he laid siege to the town of Zutphen, further north in Gelderland, in late August. Their aim was to take control of the Isil, a major branch of the Rhine that flowed into the Zydersee. Alexander sent an army with a convoy of supplies to relieve the city. A fierce cavalry engagement ensued, and in the battle, Leicester's nephew, and prominent English poet and courtier Philip Sidney was mortally wounded. The Spanish pikemen were able to, after a few devastating attacks and heavy losses, in the end prevent the English cavalry from dispersing the whole infantry, and the city was supplied. As everyone was ready to retire for the season, Zutphen was still under siege by the English and Dutch, and they held many forts around it, while the nearby city of Deventer had been taken. At the end of the year, the Earl of Leicester returned to England temporarily as the treason trial of the imprisoned Mary, Queen of Scots, was ramping up. He signed papers giving his authority temporarily to the state's general to act in his name, with Maurice countersigning. In early 1587, a different English commander arrived in the Netherlands, the great Francis Drake. He was famous, well-respected, and genuinely feared by Philip, having already circumnavigated the globe, and recently sacked the Spanish main, carrying off enough treasure to fund the English side of the war for seven years. But he wasn't there to command land forces in the Low Countries. Convinced that Philip was preparing for an invasion of England, Drake recruited, along with a fleet of his own, a couple of ships in each city in Holland and Zealand that would send any, to try to, as he put it, singe the beard of Philip. They wanted to take out the Spanish ships before they could attack. And Philip and Alexander Farnese really were planning an invasion of England. Alexander was all the while negotiating an end of hostilities with Elizabeth, but in truth, he was just stalling and trying to distract from Philip's goal of bringing that entire island back into the Catholic fold. They hoped to pacify the Netherlands enough that Alexander could leave a skeleton crew in that region and lead most of his troops across to England. In April, Drake and his fleet made their way to Spain, where they destroyed 10,000 tons of shipping in the port of Cadiz, and 150 ships were burned. A hundred more ships were then destroyed in Lisbon, now part of Philip's empire, before they left. A week later, they captured a Portuguese treasure ship with goods valued over 100,000 pounds. Philip's beard was singed, Meanwhile, a conflict arose between the two main factions of the rebellious Low Countries. The mercantile patrician interest, as Motley put it, of Holland and Zealand, and the less tolerant Calvinist groups that represented both the northern and eastern provinces, as well as the exiles that had been streaming in from places Alexander, now the Duke of Parma after his father's death, had taken. Utrecht, Friesland, Gelderland, and Overijssel continued to try to offer Elizabeth the sovereignty of the states unconditionally. They were at war with the greatest power of the age and were desperate for a new protector. Holland, parts of Zealand, and pockets in Friesland and other places were a little less inclined to do this. They were very worried about losing their constitutional rights that they, at least the mercantile patricians, started this whole rebellion over anyway, never mind that it would have never kicked off if not for the desire for religious freedom. Holland and Zeeland had a right to drive the discussion. They had been the only safe place William could go in the early parts of the revolt. They had been, for a time, the only provinces that held out against Alba, and, well, they made all the money and paid all the taxes for the effort. They kept the trade going, the goods flowing, and the people fed. Motley wrote, Notwithstanding the war, which had been raging for a terrible quarter of a century without any interruption, population was increasing, property rapidly advancing in value, labor in active demand. Famine was impossible to a state which commanded the ocean. No corn grew in Holland and Zealand, but their ports were the granary of the world. Their commerce with the Baltic nations was enormous. In one month, 800 vessels left their havens for the eastern ports alone. 100 large frigates were constantly cruising along the coasts to protect the fast-growing traffic, and an army of 20,000 foot soldiers and 2,000 cavalry were maintained on land. There were more ships and sailors at that moment in Holland and Zealand than in the whole Kingdom of England, unquote. Maurice was the stadtholder of these two provinces, although he was only 19 and wasn't much involved in the political process yet he was influenced by independent-minded lords in those two provinces. And with Leicester back in England, the states were getting nervous about the English pulling a Duke of Anjou and trying to seize power. That never happened, but in the end events unfolded which made the English leadership less welcome by their supporters and intolerable to their opponents. The Earl of Leicester had given the command of those hard-fought positions at Deventer and the fortress at Zutphen key cities along the ISIL River, to his own subordinates. He also signed a paper making these appointments outside of the purview of the States General. So you know the Dutch just loved that. In January of 1587, his commander in Deventer, William Stanley, snuck out of the city in the middle of the night and returned before daybreak with an enemy force. He handed Deventer and Zutphen over to the Spanish with the help of an English soldier of fortune, Roland York, who was in charge of the Zutphen Fortress. The Dutch were especially incensed because William Stanley was Catholic and they had warned the English they didn't trust him. York was known as an unscrupulous mercenary and wasn't trusted much either. If Maurice and the States General had any authority over Leicester's men, they wouldn't have let them lead those cities in the first place. Alexander, Duke of Parma, wrote to Philip about the news, and in the letter he stated, quote, moreover, the effect of this treason must be to sow great distrust between the English and the rebels, who will henceforth never know in whom they can confide, unquote. And he was right. First the Spanish to start this whole thing, then the French, the Catholic Walloons, even Catholic Frisians, now the English. The Dutch were finding they couldn't really trust anyone with their defense. It became known, too, that the Queen was at least entertaining notions of some sort of peace deal with Spain. She was, in fact, riding with Alexander of Parma, although letters between he and Philip made it clear they were just stalling for time, so she would be less inclined to suspect an invasion. On top of all of this, with Leicester still back in England, his already underfunded troops were getting even less attention from the Queen. Only a year earlier, they were truly admired within the Netherlands for their incredible bravery and their willingness to fight and die for the rebel cause. Now, haggard and starving, they were quick to desert or to pillage the land for supplies. The earl's absence only made things worse. And while everyone on both sides begged for his return, the longer he was away, the more the Dutch thought, maybe he didn't need to come back. Then, in the summer of 1587, the Spanish marched through Flanders and began to besiege the important seaport of Slauis. In response to all that was going on, the States General appointed Maurice Captain General of the United English and Dutch Forces and passed a resolution saying they were in charge of all civil affairs, at least until the Earl of Leicester returned. Leicester sent a dispatch at the same time which said he was on his way back. Slawis was where the Duke of Parma wanted to launch his invasion of England from. The city had a large fortified area and didn't have enough soldiers to properly defend itself, even with the addition of an English relief force. Leicester arrived in July, and a plan that everyone thought was great was settled upon, where a fleet would sail up and attack the Spanish, while the earl's fresh new troops would attack it by land. But the discussions turned into bickering. Lester's prolonged absence destroyed his authority, and, as inconceivable as it seems, nothing was done. If William was still alive, his force of personality would have no doubt sent them to relieve the city in time. But he wasn't, and Maurice did not have the authority or leadership capabilities that he would eventually have. Too late the relief was attempted, and Lester retreated when a force much smaller than he realized attacked, as he was trying to invest a nearby fort. Without the ground forces, a fleet wasn't that useful, and Slawis was surrendered. Alexander gave full honors to the defenders, and asked the famous Welsh captain, Roger Williams, to go help fight the Turks rather than remain in the Low Countries. He refused. After the loss of Slawis, the Dutch rebels and the English spent some time blaming each other and defending their own honor, While insulting their allies. But there was plenty of blame to go around. By the middle of 1587, the two sides were at loggerheads. Leicester partisans actually plotted to seize some cities in Holland, as well as Utrecht, for the Earl to kick out or even hang the leading magistrates who supported the States General over the Englishmen. It was, as the Dutch feared, a bit like a replay of what happened with the Duke of Anjou, only somehow even less successful. A plan to have Leicester enter Leiden and claim the town in the name of the Queen was discovered. The States General at this point already feared replays of Deventer and punished the men severely. From Motley on the men who were discovered conspiring for Leicester. Quote, on the 26th October, after a thorough investigation, followed by a full confession on the part of the culprits, the three were sentenced to death. They had been guilty of no actual crime. And only in case of high treason could an intention to commit a crime be considered, by the laws of the state, an offense punishable by death. But it was exactly because it was important to make the crime high treason that the prisoners were condemned. Included in this trio was a young officer who had rendered significant service for Holland over the years and was from a prominent rebel family and still had wounds from the Battle of Slawis. But after this, by the end of 1587, the Earl of Leicester realized he was so disliked in the Netherlands and his authority had so disappeared that there was no reason for him to stay any more. He departed and resigned his place as governor-general. His departure did not leave the states-general in complete control. His partisans refused to listen to their orders, and the government remained nearly paralyzed. Maurice in Holland was named Captain General and Stadtholder again, although his authority wasn't obeyed by the rival faction. The Dutch rebels spent the beginning of 1588 engaged in a minor civil war. There was still a commander of English forces, even though Leicester was no longer in the Low Countries, and many of the towns still supported him. The majority, but not the entirety of Holland, supported the States General and Maurice as supreme authority. Some towns mutinied against the state's general, and there were demonstrations in more towns which threatened to erupt into real warfare between the two rebel Dutch factions. But by the end of March, news of Leicester's formal resignation had reached Holland. Everyone realized that the infighting was up. Leicester's side was fighting for a man who wasn't returning. Most came back into the fold, and the rebels were reunited. All the while, the English were trying to negotiate peace with the Spanish for much of the early part of the year. There wasn't a significant amount of military activity, because while these negotiations were ongoing, Alexander was readying his forces for an invasion of England. Philip had hoped that Alexander Farnese wouldn't even need an escort, and the governor-general was gathering transport ships and troops to Slaus. Philip wrote way back in November of 1587 to Alexander, but in the letter he wrote, maybe this letter won't even be received because you'll already be in Britain. But the Duke of Parma knew that unguarded troop ships would fall easy prey to the dominant Dutch naval forces, so he waited. Plenty of people knew an attack was coming. Elizabeth sent Drake to raid the shore because of it, although she still tried to negotiate a peace in late 1587 perhaps assuming it could be stopped. Her spymaster and close confidant Walsingham was certain it was going to happen. He thought Philip and Alexander were playing her. He'd even learned of all the stuff Alexander was buying in the southern Netherlands to prepare for the invasion. But he couldn't convince Elizabeth it was truly real. As late as June of 1588, Elizabeth was hopeful of a peace treaty and had ministers in the Low Countries dealing directly with the Duke. Alexander had been given authority to negotiate by Philip, with explicit instructions not to actually make a deal. It was still just a stalling tactic. Elizabeth finally seemed to realize in late July what everyone else knew, that the Spanish were preparing to attack England. Alexander had gathered tens of thousands of troops. The Pope had issued a bull stating that Philip should attack England and the Low Countries in the name of Catholicism. Then, in July, 130 Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian warships, including 60 large galleons, the whole fleet totaling 59,000 tons, with over 3,000 guns, and nearly 30,000 soldiers, sailors, slaves, and attendants, sailed out of Lisbon. In especially bad weather on the way up around Spain, A Welsh galley slave, who had spent a decade as a POW, helped organize a mutiny and captured one of the larger vessels. As another nearby ship turned to fight, he rammed it and his fellow slaves attacked. After killing the Spanish defenders, both galleys were taken to northern Spain, where they met with Henry of Navarre before the now ex-slaves dispersed. The rest of the armada, and yes, it was 1588, it was that armada, was to venture to Calais, pick up Alexander Farnese and his 30,000 land troops, which at this point had dwindled to a bit more than half of that thanks to disease, and then sail to England. The issue was that Alexander couldn't make it to Calais with the Dutch blockade, and the Spanish had huge galleons that couldn't get to Farnese. Nobody seemed to notice that little detail except for the Duke. The armada was spotted off the Lizard, a peninsula in Cornwall, and the southernmost point on Britain at the end of July. Lord Admiral Charles Howard, the commander of the English naval forces, was at Plymouth, the biggest nearby port, and had 60 ships ready to go in a couple of days. The forces soon engaged, and the smaller, more maneuverable English ships were able to sail circles around the hulking Spanish fleet. Sir Francis Drake and Howard held their fleet out of range and just pestered the Spanish. That night, the English fleet scattered, and the Spanish had a day to sail unmolested. The Spanish wanted to get their huge vessels close to the English ones, but the English were able to sail around them. More English ships joined the defense, bringing the number up to about a hundred, mostly merchant ships outfitted with some cannons. The Armada made it to Calais on July 27th and anchored there. The English fleet anchored a mile and a half away, and the Dutch continued to patrol the coast of Flanders, keeping up the blockade of Alexander. Then, in the middle of the night, the Armada, waiting impatiently for their cargo of Spanish conquistadors, heard the sound of boats approaching. Was it the English attacking, or the Duke of Parma with the troops? Soon, the light from fires showed them what it was, but it wasn't lit torches. The English had sent fireboats toward the lumbering fleet. A panic set in, despite the admiral's attempts to calm everyone. By morning, a couple of ships had burned, but mostly, the problem was that the armada had dispersed, and spent the night floating away from Calais. The largest galleus, a galley converted to be a floating fortress covered in cannons, and had over 700 people on board, tried to make it into the harbor, but was surrounded by small English ships and was captured. At nine in the morning on July 29th, a now scattered Spanish armada attempted to reconsolidate near the small Flemish port of Gravelines. Drake and Howard caught up with them and again buzzed around the larger armada, never getting close enough for the Spanish to board them. The large Spanish vessels, made easy targets for the small English ships, and by the end of the day five more Spanish ships had been sunk without a single English one going down. After a full day of fighting, the Spanish admiral, realizing that they would never be able to properly engage with the English, and convinced that Alexander Farnes had betrayed him and would never show up, moved his fleet north off the Flemish coast nearly getting blown into the shallows of Zealand, at which point they would have been grounded and picked apart by the small shallow-bottomed Dutch boats. They made it to the North Sea, though, and picked up pace as they sailed north, abandoning the Duke of Parma's invasion force. The English followed them, unsure if they were going to land in Scotland, an ally with King James VI, the future King James I of England. But the Spanish just wanted to get the heck out of Dodge, They made their way north before a huge storm came through, strong enough to scatter the English fleet for a few days. The pursuit of the Spanish was impossible, and the fate of the armada was a mystery. Motley, in one of his more colorful passages, which is saying something, wrote, damaged, leaking, without pilots, without a competent commander, the great fleet entered that furious storm and was whirled along the iron crags of Norway. And between the savage rocks of Pharaoh and the Hebrides, disaster after disaster marked their perilous track, Gale after gale swept them hither and thither, tossing them on sandbanks, or shattering them up against granite cliffs. The coasts of Norway, Scotland, Ireland were strewn with the wrecks of that pompous fleet, which claimed the dominion of the seas with the bones of those invincible legions which were to have sacked London and made England a Spanish viceroyalty, As they looped around the north end of Scotland and then passed Ireland, they were hit with more storms. More ships were wrecked along the Irish coast, and an estimated 5,000 died there. Only 10,000 of the 30,000 who left returned to Spain alive. Thus ended the Spanish Armada, and with it, the invasion of England, which would restore a Catholic, Spanish-allied, or Spanish-run monarchy, after which a reinvasion of the United Provinces of the Netherlands would be easy work. The Duke of Parma, however, was left in the Low Countries. The Dutch blockade, which Philip and the rest of his advisers chose to ignore instead of tackling head-on, kept Alexander, who warned of it, from moving. And so, despite making it to Dunkirk with a significant number of troops, as well as transports and ships for them, by the time the Armada was lingering outside of Gravelines, he was stuck ashore. If not for the Hollanders and the Zeelanders, people like—and I'm going to pronounce all of these wrong—Justinus van Nassau, Jacob van Wassenaer Duvenvoorde, Peter Vanderdose, and Juste de Farnese would have been able to take his men to England even without the Armada's escort as the English fleet was distracted. Next time, Alexander, knowing full well that England is out of his reach, even if Philip doesn't yet grasp this, will lead his army back out to continue the war on land in the Low Countries. And Maurice will come into his own as a military commander and take his father's mantle as the real leader of the fledgling Dutch Republic. Thanks for listening.